Amen. What an awesome thing to worship the one we adore. It's so great to be with you every Sunday, worshiping God. It's what we're designed to be, actually. The first statement of the Westminster Catechism says that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so it's just awesome to be here, glorifying God with you. Um, we've been uh, going through a series uh, last few weeks. Uh, it's called Foundations for Faith. And uh, the idea behind this series is that uh, this world that we live in is quite anti-Christian. And there's been a lot of attacks, not just on what we believe, but at the core of what we believe, particularly attacks on Jesus, attacks on the Bible. And so uh, we're uh, endeavoring to shore up what we believe and look at the actual evidence and not look at what, you know, a lot of people are saying, but see the actual evidence and make up our own minds about what is the truth behind uh, Christianity. Uh, is Christi- Christianity just a, a myth that developed over time, or is it substantial? Does it have scientific backing? Does it have historical and logical truth behind it? And uh, so th- that's what we're looking at. Last week we looked at um, the fact that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, that they actually saw Jesus do the miracles, and that uh, it was also written by journalists who went around and interviewed people and got the facts all straight and organized it for us in the form of the Gospels, and that they, they were, and there's this huge amount of, of evidence that describes the fact that the Gospels were actually written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, uh, and that they, they wrote it while the people who, wa- who lived and watched Jesus do the miracles were still alive. And uh, so they, they could have challenged those things. Um, so today, before we leave the subject of the eyewitness accounts, we're going to take a little bit of a detour, although we're going to talk about, a bit about the evidence, but it's going to be a little bit of a detour from the evidence and, and kind of delve into what, what did the, the apostles really think of Jesus and how did they describe Jesus. And uh, next week we're going to get back into the more of the uh, proving things, uh, although we're going to touch on that a little bit today. And today we're going to use a, a, an interesting method of, uh, of looking at the evidence that's brought before us. And that method is, uh, was first uh, brought about by someone who's very secular. Uh, his name's John Douglas. And John Douglas has this uncanny, uncanny ability to understand what people are like without ever meeting that person. You might be going like, what? Yeah, John uh, Douglas was the first person that we now describe as a psychological profiler. And he was, he was, one, he was the first, basically, uh, 30 years ago, he was studying the case in California of the uh, trailside killer, his, a serial murderer was called back then. And um, he described this person, just by looking at the forensic evidence at the various murder scenes, he described the person as having a speech impediment, a tendency toward animal cruelty, bedwetting, and arson. <laughs> How do you get that from crime scenes? I don't know. But this guy was good. He, is a, you know, he's a, he has a doctoral degree in psychology, and he was also a detective for many years. And guess what? When they finally caught the guy, that's exactly what he was like. He had bedwetting tendencies, arson tendencies, tendency towards animal cruelty, and a speech impediment. Amazing. 
And so he has this natural tal talent for understanding hu human behavior. And Douglas has become renowned for these uh, abilities that he has. And he co-authored co several be bestsellers. Um, and um, Jodie Foster, who won an Oscar for her role in um, Science, Silence of the Lambs, maybe you've seen that, publicly thanked Douglas for being a real-life figure be behind her FBI character, uh, character's mentor. Now, how is Douglas able to do that? How is he able to understand what people will be like just from looking at the evidence? But, but what he said is behavior reflects personality. So you can take someone's behavior and then you can build their personality on the behavior that they have by using this method. Uh, and so Douglas examined these, the, the crime scenes to find out who these people are. What the, and then he also interviewed uh, the victims, if there were victims, still alive, that is. Uh, he, he would interview them and try to figure out what the, what the criminals behind, the, the perpetrators uh, behind it were like. If you've ever watched Criminal Minds, uh, a TV series, yeah, I see some spot. Yeah, oh, we love that show. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's what they do. That's a, you know, it's a glorified, glamorized Hollywood version of the, the, the profiler, but it's, it, it has that idea of getting behind and figuring out what the person is like so that you have a better chance of capturing someone. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to use that method of psychological profiling on Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't a criminal, okay? But we're going to use the same ideas that we can figure out his personality from what he did. And we can figure out what he thought of himself, who he thought he was, from what he did, not necessarily what he said. And so that's where we're going to start, and then eventually we're going to get to what he said and to build a case for the deity of Christ. That's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, ever since 1977, when uh, John Hick published a book uh, where he described the, what he thought happened in the Gospels. He basically described Jesus as someone who didn't think he was God, who was just a rabbi, a good teacher, and that people flocked around him, and that over time, the myth that he was deity, that he was God, was backwritten into the Gospels. And ever since 1977, this uh, concept has been spread widely and grabbed a hold of by many, many people, many, many uh, scholars, many uh, fictional writers, all kinds of people have grabbed a hold of this to, to uh, in what I believe is an attempt to discredit Jesus Christ from being who he said he was. And so uh, you really have to look at the material and figure out, okay, well, what does the actual material say about Jesus? What did he think of himself? And what can we find? And so one of, the, one of the things when we do this is that we have to delete because that's what these scholars say. Anything that says, that implies that Jesus thought of himself as God, they kind of delete all those verses from the runnings. And they say, well, those were written after. So, so, the, so the, 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 the scholars who worked on this method because I'm not smart enough to do all that stuff, okay? So I, I borrowed this stuff from other people who are much smarter than me. And uh, what they did is they, they took only the material that all of the scholarly experts said, oh yeah, that's probably some of the earliest written stuff. That was, uh, that was not written years later. That was, that was before the corruption and the, uh, uh, the um, supposed... Uh, what do they call that? Legendary development happened. 
it was before that. And so they take only those passages of Scripture and have a look at those and find out from those passages what is, what is the Jesus that's in the Bible look like from those passages. And so the early evidence of the divine nature, uh, take for instance the way Jesus chose his 12 disciples. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus talks about choosing his disciples. And what you'll notice is that Jesus is patterning, is patterning the disciples the 12 of them, after the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, what do you notice about that? That's peculiar. Jesus isn't one of the 12 disciples. Now, you might, well, what do you mean? Well, if you're organizing, if you're patterning a new kingdom, and you want there to be 12 preeminent people, then probably you should be one of those preeminent people. But Jesus didn't do that. You see, he was kind of patterning his, his way of doing this after God the Father. It was God the Father who organized and uh, 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 put together the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's the way Jesus was doing it. He was other than what he was building. He wasn't part of what he was building. Um, so that's interesting. Um, all of the rabbis... Uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all part of their organization, whereas Jesus seemed to stand outside of his organization that he was building. Um, and it's the way that Jesus teaches that was so radical. It was so different than everyone else, the way they taught. Um, in, on, on the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching, well, he's teaching for about four chapters of, of uh, Matthew. And at the end of it, the people are just like, Wow, he doesn't teach like the teachers of the law. He teaches like one having authority. And they were amazed at his teaching. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's absolutely true. Jesus was teaching very differently, very different from the way I teach or anyone else that teaches. He was actually taking authority in ways that we would go like, uh, don't think you should be doing that, uh, in ways that I would never teach. Um, because if you look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus keeps replaying, repeating the phrase, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And about 80% of the time after he says, you've heard it said, he quotes a chunk of the Old Testament. And so he's taking this chunk of the Old Testament, and he's kind of pushing it aside and saying, ah, but I, have, I know better. I know better than the Old Testament. What? You know better than the authorized word of God? And, and when you look at it, it's interesting because he has a very, very high view of Scripture. If you look at, uh, uh, do I have it here? Yeah, a couple slides ahead. Two slides ahead. I'm getting ahead of myself. One more. There. This is, his, this is Jesus' view of Scripture. It's a very high view of Scripture. He says that this, it's the Word of God. It's never going to pass away. Not even a stroke of the pen is going to disappear from it. And it's someone who has that view of Scripture is saying, oh, well, by the way, we can put that aside because I have something even better than what that has to say. And so he talks about murder is like being angry with your brother. He says that adultery is like being having sexual thoughts in your mind. He says that, uh, you know, that instead of uh, getting even with your, with your enemy, and, you know, if they knocked out your tooth, knock out his tooth. 
And he says, no, 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 be, be friendly to your enemies. And so Jesus is putting his own words above the words of scriptures. Now, a mere mortal teacher who has this kind of view of scripture wouldn't do that, okay? So what we're doing is we're going back to things that Jesus did that describe who he thought of himself, or what he thought of himself. Um, if you look at, uh, in Mark chapter 7, he does it again. It's very radical. It says, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And the Pharisees must have been going like, whoa, dude, you just erased half of Leviticus. You just, whoosh, that doesn't really matter. What? Jesus is setting himself up as a greater authority than the Bible. It's, it's shocking. In one fell swoop, Jesus just wipes out big chunks of the Old Testament. Did he have the authority to do that? Unless he understood himself to be God, he wouldn't have the authority to do that. And so he's not saying I'm God by what I do here. He's just doing it. And the people are amazed and they're shocked. <laughs> and the leaders are up, angry about it. They're upset because they see what's going on. And they don't think he has the right to do that at all. It's one of the re reasons uh, that, that the Pharisees rejected Jesus. <clears throat> and it's not only, um, that's not only what, what the Pharisees thought about him, but it's also the, the Roman leaders um, we have to ask, why did they crucify Jesus? If he had merely been some just teacher, a moral teacher, why would they crucify him? How did he end up on the cross? Especially during Passover season, when no Jew wants any Jew to be executed. There has to be a pretty good reason for having that sign above his head, you know, Jesus, King of the Jews. And as... Uh, as uh, Witherington, he's a guy I've been studying this stuff on, he says either Jesus had, been, had made this verbal claim or somebody clearly thought that he had made that claim. Um, another thing that Jesus did that was very interesting, he kept referring to a kingdom of God that he was establishing. Now, did God already have a kingdom on earth at the time of Jesus? Yeah, he did. He had the chosen people, the people of Israel. There was a kingdom on earth already established. It was the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus constantly says, oh, I'm establishing this kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He calls it various things. And Jesus kept saying, I'm going to establish this kingdom. And uh, in fact, his miracles often testify. He used to testify that he was establishing something new. Um, he, Jesus said this, If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He didn't act like other miracle wor workers who do mir miraculous things. Jesus gave the miracles as a sign that he was setting up something new, something different. And he constantly was pointing to himself, saying, you have to believe in me. Normally, a preacher, a teacher, a religious leader says, you have to believe in God. But Jesus kept saying, you have to believe in me. Believe in my Father, believe also in me. What, what is he saying? He's saying that he was divine. 
by what he was doing. <clears throat> Jesus was opening up something unprecedented, the dominion of God on earth. And that's really what the Christian church is. It's God's dominion. We, we live in a dominion, dominion of Canada. It's ruled by the queen, sort of, <laughs> and other figures. But a dominion is a place where um, that's run by somebody. And Jesus Christ runs the dominion of Christianity. <clears throat> also, Christ's teaching style was very, very shocking during his day because he would often start his, his sayings by saying, truly I say to you, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Um, or it basically means, amen, I say to you. So be it what I say to you. It's, it's very odd. You don't see that in any other uh, uh, literature from the, that time period or anywhere, really. And what Jesus was doing was he was testifying to himself on his own behalf, which is really weird. In Jewish culture, you always had to have at least two witnesses, and they could pair off one another and say, yeah, that's right, exactly what he said, or yeah, as he said it. But you wouldn't have someone saying, yeah, just the way I said it, that's the way it was. And they would say, oh, that's not even valid. In fact, the Pharisees did say that about Jesus. They, they said, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Um, because they said, you can't appear as your own witness. And yet Jesus was doing that. Why was he doing that? I believe it's because of Jesus' opinion about himself. He recognized that he was God Almighty, and he could actually do that. He could affirm his own words, uh, which, which a, a mere teacher wouldn't be able to do. He wouldn't do that. Uh, and then the, there's this other thing that Jesus does. He, he calls his father, Abba Father. That's like saying, Daddy. Hey, Daddy. And so when you pray, do you start your prayers with, Hey, Dad? Or do you say, Our Father, which art in heaven? You know, there's a certain amount of respect and honor you want to give to God. And yet, Jesus seems to use this term of endearment, Abba. It's kind of like Daddy. Hey, Daddy. And he uses it towards God. And he's the first person to do though that. He also taught his, his disciples to, to pray the same way. But he was ushering into a new era. And basically, Jesus ushers into an, us into a new era where we can have an intimate relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the people could not have an intimate relationship with God. In fact, their relationship with God was one primarily... Uh, described as a fearful relationship. They were afraid that if they didn't obey, God would send them into captivity, destroy them somehow. If they did obey, God would bless them. That was the, the style of the Old Testament. It's very much like a very harsh father description. But when Jesus comes, he comes with this new style of relating to God. And it's because he was going to deal with the sin issue that he initiated this new style, that God was actually our friend, that God was actually someone who was on our side. He wasn't hovering over us with the big stick, ready to smack us up if we just got it wrong. No, God was a benevolent God. He wanted us to do well, and he, he was on our side. And so Jesus is ushering in this new intimacy with the Father. Last week, we talked about the phrase that Jesus loved to use for himself, the Son of Man, referring both to his humanity 
And if you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it refers also to this divine being that was going to come, the Son of Man. And so Jesus was combining this phrase, uh, kind of hinting at his divinity, but also stating his humanity. It's kind of interesting the way he did that. He used also the unique phrase, the Son of God, but he didn't use it very often. Mostly other people called him the Son of God. And he only three times did I find it where Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. It's interesting because Jesus sometimes seems to be downplaying his divinity Especially when the demons would shout out, you're the son of God, we know you, you're the son of God. And Jesus would tell them to be quiet. Why, why would he do that? Have you ever wondered, like, why didn't Jesus accept this, this truth from the demons? Yeah? Yeah. Right. It's, okay, that's exactly right. That's one of the reasons. I think there's many reasons, but that's definitely one of them, is that he was not looking to be glorified here on earth. He wanted the glory to go to his Father. And if you notice in the Bible, the Holy Spirit always wants to glorify the Son or the Father, and the Son always wants to glorify the Father. And so he wasn't looking for the praise of people. I believe also he, he didn't want demons to be the first people to <laughs> express who he was. It was kind of a... You know, bad publicity or bad bad source for publicity, um, but also I think that he was waiting, bidding his time to allow people to discover on their own who he was, that they would discover that he was God, and not that he would go and pronounce it ahead of time. And so, he, if you notice, there's actually a progression through the Gospels from the beginning of Christ's ministry where he he doesn't he. He just, the way he acts is he's acting like God, but the way he talks, he doesn't go around saying, hey, oh, by the way, I'm God, you know, I'm, I'm the Almighty. He doesn't go around saying that because I don't think the people would be able to handle it. They're like, what are you talking about? How can that be? Because they had no idea what the Trinity could be like or, or what it was. Um, because uh, in the Old Testament, it, it just, it's not there. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> and one, one other thing that's kind of interesting when you, when you think, okay, so the, these, this idea that the disciples somehow backwrote, or whoever the authors of, of the Gospels backwrote into it these ideas that Jesus was divine, were they also able to backwrite into the Old Testament that there was a divine being coming? And this divine being would actually be born? Obviously not. The disciples had no authority, no ability to, to even to, to address the Old Testament. It was already in written form. It was already in received form. Everybody was reading it. But in its pages are many, many references to the divinity of this one who would be born. I mean, the most common probably is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, for unto, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders... And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, 
who, what son who's ever been born could claim these titles? As far as I know, Jesus is the only one who's ever claimed these titles. And the apostles couldn't possibly back write this in. It's impossible. Um, It's conceivable that the gospel writers wrote a few things into, you know, added Christ's divinity afterwards. That's conceivable. But it's inconceivable that they would have any authority to rewrite the Old Testament. Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Um, Again, a prophecy that God with us was going to be born. Remember the the prophecy from Daniel about uh, the Son of God, or Son of Man? Let me just read it again. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven. He reproached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. Who has sovereign power? Who has glory and authority? God. All nations and all people of every language worshipped him. Shouldn't they be worshiping God, who is God alone, to be praised? They're worshiping him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So this being was going to be everlasting, whoever this was. It's clear that it's distinct from the Almighty, the, uh, the Ancient of Days. And his dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Obviously, he has to be eternal. <clears throat> so... When we're talking about the Old Testament, we have to realize that this is what the people that Jesus was coming to minister to, the Jewish people, they had. They had the Old Testament. They knew it very well. And when they read their Old Testament, what they would read in the Old Testament, in fact, um, they would memorize this passage of scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, it's called. And in it, it starts with, the Lord our God is one. Uh, No, I didn't quite get that right. Yeah, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what, that, that's what it says. Yeah, it's translated differently in different places. So sometimes I get my King James back in there. <laughs> various translations I've used over my life. Um, and so the Jewish people were monotheists. They believed in one God, that God was indivisible, that he was one, one being. Um, and Isaiah makes it very clear. Know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God makes it very clear that that there's no God that was formed before him. There's no God going to be formed after him. He is one, and he's indivisible. He's one God. That's it. And so the Jews all understood this. And believe me when I tell you, Christians also understand this to be true. We believe in one God. We don't believe in three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God. We believe in the unity of the divinity. And there's no separation. Uh, there is three different... Per- it's complicated, okay? And, uh, and let me tell you this. One of the things we have to realize is that God is... Um, transcendent. That means he's beyond us, beyond our understanding. And it's very hard for someone who is beyond our understanding to describe what he himself is like, because we can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. 
And this is the, the truth of the Trinity. And uh, one of the things that is interesting is when you look at um, the the pronoun or, or the way God is described in the Old Testament. There's two words used uh, for God. Um, God and the Lord. And they're almost always in the plural form. Elohim for God and Lord is Adonai. And in the Hebrew that they're written in, they're almost always written plural. Why is that? God, you know, like God's, we don't put the S on, the, on it. But in Hebrew, it is actually plural. Uh, we don't say Lord's when we describe the Lord. And this, it's very strange to have both God described as a singularity and God described as a plural. And it's all through the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, there's uh, plural pronouns uh, used to describe God. You see this in Genesis chapter 1. Let us make, let us make man in our own image. So it's like, well, who, who's talking here? You know, like, who's the group deciding this? Well, it's the plurality of God. Um, there's verbs that are used to describe God. Um, creates, makes, wanders, uh, reveals, and judges. Now, in English, when we use the plural for, the, uh, for what we do, it just means that it's continuing on. But in Hebrew, that's not the case. You don't use a plural word for someone who's by themselves doing something. And yet five times, it says that God is, gods are doing things, things. It's very interesting. Um, and, and there's many more, but suffice it to, it gets really complicated after that, so I'm going to leave that out. Uh, but suffice it to say uh, that there is both this description of God as a singular thing and a description of God as a plural thing. It's very confusing. And basically, up until the time of Jesus, the whole confusion was just ignored. People just went, we don't really know why it's there. The Jewish scribes give some basic ideas, but they just found it to be strange. But guess what? It stayed in the Bible all through its transmission. And it wasn't until Christ came along that people started going, ah, now it makes sense why it was written that way. Um, and so this idea that, that God is transcendent and that his essence is really hard for us to understand because have you ever ever seen a, a multiplicity of singularity <laughs> it's really hard concept to grasp how can there be a multiplicity of singularity it, it it's just weird and we can't understand it but it's not unusual and it's not illogical to think that a being so much greater so much harder to comprehend would be hard for us to comprehend. That's not, that's not illogical. It's quite logical. Uh, can you imagine explaining to your dog how you love your spouse? Well, that's kind of tough to do, right? Because you're a greater being. You're a much more complex being than your dog is, you know? Uh, and besides, they don't know English. You know, woof, 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 woof. You know, it doesn't really work. But God has the same problem trying to explain himself to us. And so basically, God doesn't. He just describes who he is, and we have to kind of 
go, okay, if that's the way you present yourself, we accept it. We don't understand it, but we accept it. And that's how God is presented. Um, but that's also the problem that Jesus had to deal with when he came to earth. All these people were monotheists. They all believed in the singularity of God. And as he was introducing this, the God of multiplicity, uh, himself included and the Trinity included, they were like, what's going on? They couldn't, they couldn't box it. They couldn't put it together. And so Jesus didn't go around just declaring that he was God because he, he didn't want to blow their minds, <laughs> basically. He was going slow at it. And so the first thing he did was he, per, he performed a lot of miracles and just allowed the miracles to speak for themselves. It just allowed people to see that there is some pretty, this is amazing, we haven't heard or seen anything like this. Even the prophets of the Old Testament have not behaved like this man's behaving. It's greater and grander and more miraculous. Um, you can count all the miracles in the Old Testament and Jesus did more than all of them combined. It's amazing. And so Jesus is, first of all, showing his divinity by the miracles. Then he takes it a step further, further and starts intimating that he's God. And finally, near the end of his ministry, he starts saying clearly to the disciples, I am God. And, and, and they're like so confused, and we're going to get to that. But So I'm going to kind of go through this, talk about the miracles, then talk about his intimation of his divinity, and then finally talk about his, his declaration of his hum, uh, divinity. So Jesus healed Crippled, blind, shriveled hands, constant bleeding, healed the fever, uh, released demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, deaf, mute, leprous, and sometimes he healed all the sick. <laughs> so kind of blanket. Yeah, he, he kind of covered it all. And he even raised four people from the dead. I'd like to see you try that. He walked on water. Uh, all these miracles showed that Jesus was something special. He wasn't just a prophet. And when questioned about whether he was the Messiah or not, went by John the, the Baptist's apostles, or disciples, they came to Jesus, are, are you the one that's coming? Is there somebody else we should be looking at? Because John was expecting Jesus to be a, a militant. Uh, you know, he's going to come with his winnowing fork and, and throw out the wheat and, and, and thresh the wheat and divide everybody, and he's going to be... And, and Jesus, didn't, Jesus seemed to be kind of loving and gracious and kind. And where's this, you know, uh, iron scepter that he was supposed to be holding? John was kind of like, oh, what's going on? And so John went, are you the one? Or did I get it wrong? Is there somebody else? And this is what Jesus said. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy have been cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus was saying, well, check it out. I mean, I think I'm the one. <laughs> you know, look around you. It's pretty obvious. And so the miracles attest to the fact that Jesus was the one. He was the, the Messiah that was coming. He was the Son of God. And so... Um, 
In Matthew 8, it says, Jesus got in the boat. I love this story. I love telling the story to kids. You know, Jesus gets in a boat, and he's heading across the water, and uh, he falls asleep. And the disciples are freaking out because there's water coming in the boat. I had this experience this summer, right, Dalton? We were out in the, on the St. Lawrence River, and, and uh, all of a sudden, water was coming up over the front of our boat, into the boat, like right over the windshield. And it was kind of like alarming, you know, like, we can't keep doing this over and over because <laughs> we will be at the bottom soon. Uh, so probably was you know, we had an engine and everything, but I can, I can imagine if you were in the middle of a storm in a rowboat and this was happening, it would be pretty terrifying. And it's very likely that these guys couldn't swim that well. They're way out in the middle of the lake. They're terrified. And Jesus is sleeping. And they're like, Jesus, wake up, wake up. You got to save us from the storm. You're gonna, you're, we're going to be destroyed. And Jesus, you know, is like, oh, you guys, so little faith. Winds, be quiet. Waves, stop. The disciples are like, whoa. What kind of man is this? He says the winds stop and they stop. And he says to the waves, stop and they stop. What kind of guy is this? And they're starting, it's starting to dawn on them that this is not a prophet. This is somebody else. There's something going on here. And the wheels are turning in their heads. And they're like, okay, we've seen a lot of miracles, but this walking on water stuff, talking to the elements, this is very strange. And they're starting to get it. And they're starting to figure out who Jesus is. And finally, Jesus asked them one time, you know, who, who do the crowd say I am? You know, and they say, well, some say John the Baptist come back to life. Some say Elijah. Some say, and then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Well, you're the Messiah, the, the Son of God who's come into the world. They're starting to get it. And so the inner circle of Jesus, they are getting it. They're figuring it out. But Jesus allows a long period of time for that to happen. He doesn't just go around saying, I'm God, you got to believe that or else you're doomed. No, he takes him a little time. Uh, John 14, 11, Jesus says, regarding the miracles, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the miracles themselves. So some of them were like, still like, Oh, man, I'm having a really hard time with this Jesus being God and God being in God. Like, ah. And Jesus finally says, well, you know, at least believe the miracles. You know, they, they purport to say what I'm saying is true. And they're like, oh, okay. So they, they're slowly getting it. So this, is, this starts the intimation of his deity. So first he's, he's, he's just showing them his power. Now he starts intimating that he's actually deity. Um, Basically, there's, there's this, these guys, they were carrying this paralyzed guy over because they wanted Jesus to heal this paralyzed guy. And so they chop a hole in the roof because they couldn't get in through the door, you know? These guys are pretty desperate. Can you imagine someone coming to your house, cutting a hole in your roof, you know, jigsaw, you're like, what is all the noise all of a sudden? It's an open sky, and they're letting down this, this mat down in front of Jesus. And Jesus turns to the guy and says, oh, your sins are forgiven. I think he's coming for healing, not for forgiveness of sins. You know? And then there's a murmuring in the back of the crowd. Did you hear that? He just forgave that, that guy's, the, the paralyzed guy's sins. You see, the Pharisees were saying, it's only God. You see, if, if you sin against me, or, or no, let, let's say you sin against uh, 
Peter Hutterink. You sin against Peter Hutterink. You know, you, you ripped him off, you stole 200 bucks off him, and he's not too happy about it. And you come to me and say, oh, pastor, I stole 200 bucks off of Peter. And I say, oh, well, you're forgiven. <laughs> What's the problem with that? <laughs> Peter's out the 200 bucks, right? <laughs> I don't have the authority to forgive, okay? But with God, God is the one who we sin against. You know, when, when David destroyed his marriage vows and, and destroyed someone else's marriage vows and, and slept with a woman, you know what David said? Against you and you alone I've sinned. And I'm like thinking to myself, hold it. What has Uriah got to say about this? The guy you murdered and stole his wife. I think you might have sinned against him too. But, but David doesn't say that. Because ultimately all wrongdoing is against God. And so what Jesus was doing here is he was taking the place of God and saying your sins are forgiven. And that's what started the murmuring. And actually, it seems like it was actually, they were keeping it to themselves, but they were definitely thinking it. And it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what's harder to do? To say to a man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk? But so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the, the man and said, man, get up and walk. And the paralyzed guy got up and walked out of there, took up his mat and walked out. Amazing. But what was it doing? It's showing that Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker. He was taking the place of God and doing something. You know, notice too that, that he was taking the place of God. He knew their thoughts. He was omniscient in some ways. Notice that he calls himself son of man. In, in John chapter 5, Jesus says this, My father has been working until now, and I've been working. Therefore the Jews sought to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. See, the intimation is starting to come out. They're starting to get it. When Jesus says, God's my father, they're starting to realize that he's claiming deity. And they're starting to get upset with him, making himself equal with God. And this, look at this inflammatory statement that he says in, in verse 23 of John 5. All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Hold it a sec. Who are we to worship and honor and glorify? God Almighty. And we're supposed to give him a certain type of worship. What's it called? With all our heart, soul, and mind. And Jesus says, well, you've got to honor me the same way. <laughs> wow. Shocking. So he's intimating. He's not saying I'm God, but he's just kind of dropping little things out there. And people are like, what? What does he mean by that? They're all shocked. They don't know what's going on. But he keeps dropping these little bombs all over the place. And uh, people are slowly getting it. Um, again, uh, one day Jesus is out. The disciples are in the boat. Very windy. And Jesus calls them out to walk on the water. But it's interesting what he says to the disciples when they're freaking out. They think they see a ghost in the middle of the night. And he says, uh, don't worry, I am. That's, that's the actual translation. Most of our English translations say, don't worry, uh, I'm... Uh, is I, right? But actually the word is the same as I am in the other places. And so it's the same word that God described himself with when he met Moses. Remember Moses at the burning bush? Bush is burning, but the bush isn't burning up. 
And Moses checks it out, and there's a voice that says, you know, take your shoes off, it's holy ground. And then God gives Moses all kinds of instructions. And finally, Moses goes, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. I'm going to go tell the people that you're going to release them. But who should I say is sending me to release them? And God says, I am that I am. Who? What? It's a very unusual thing. I am. Okay, why didn't he say Jehovah or the Lord or something that... But no, he used, he, he, what, what is he doing? He's saying, I'm mysterious. You don't get me. I'm different than you. I am wholly other. And you don't have it all figured out about me. I am. That's it. That's all you get. And it's really cool that, that God describes himself that way. Um, then I'd like you to turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 8. I don't have all the slides for all the next I want to go through. But if you look in John chapter 8, it's absolutely a fantastic passage of scripture describing Christ's divinity because he kind of he kind of flows through from from just kind of intimating about it to stating it really clearly. Um, so John chapter 8 uh, verse 18 says if I testified to myself and my father testifies about me. And then they they said to him, well, "Where's your father?" And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Well, there's an interesting claim. He's just kind of intimating. He's kind of pushing him a little bit. If, if you knew me, you'd know God. Well, it's not, he's not out and out saying he's God, but he's kind of intimating it. And with these words, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid a hand on him, for his hour had not come. Notice that they're ready to stone him, but they don't bother just quite yet. Uh, Verse 23. You are from beneath. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. What do you mean you're not of this world? You're born to Mary, Joseph. What's the deal here? He's claiming something else. Uh, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. You will die in your sins. Did you catch that? He's saying, again, he's referring to himself as I am. And he's also saying that you're going to die in your sins if you don't believe in me. The Old Testament was always about believing in God. Now it's about believing in Jesus. If Jesus wasn't God, then all of these statements were pure blasphemy. Completely crazy if he wasn't. Um... Verse 42, I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. You do not understand my speech because you are not able to listen to my word. Which of you convicts me of sin? What? He's saying he's sinless. If, any of, if I would have stand up before you and said, how many of you can convict me of sin? There's a few people, particularly the ones in that row right over there, that would be able to uh, point out a few things about my life uh, that don't quite add up to what I preach and teach. And, and they would be able to do that. But Jesus stands up, says that, and nobody says anything. He's claiming to be sinless, like God. And... They're not sure about that. They, they say that he's got a demon. Um, and finally, in verse 53, they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who's dead? The prophets are all dead. Do you, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answers, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me. Another clue into why he doesn't self-promote. Of whom you say that he is our God. 
your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. And then the Jews are like, what? You're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, he's not intimating any longer. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> that's it, Pax. He's saying it plain as day. And they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself uh, going through the midst of them. Oh my goodness, I have so much more material here. I'm going to just hit a couple of highlights and then I'm going to conclude. And if you would like the notes, I have many, many more pages of this stuff. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I just don't want to know another sermon uh, on the subject. So just bear with me for another five minutes or so, and I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. Um, in John chapter 10. So now Jesus is starting to move from the general to the intimation, the miracles, then the intimation. Now he's moving into really declaring who he is. And this is what he says. Uh, I and my father are one. Eh, you can't get much clearer than that. Then the Jews took up stones to, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these do you, works do you stone me? So he's pointing at the, the good works that he did. But they're looking at, yeah, but you just called yourself God. And the Jews answered them, For the good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So they're pretty clear on what he was saying. <laughs> um, Jesus says to his own disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip's like, well, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be sufficient for us. Just show us God. That'll be, that'll be awesome. <laughs> Jesus says to him, I've been with you for so long, and you don't know me, Philip? You get what Jesus is saying? You don't get who I am, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? He's again very specifically claiming that he's God. The words I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe the works themselves. Okay, I'm going to skip a whole bunch here. Really cool stuff on, on how Jesus is, since, glory, since uh, being raised from the dead, how much honor and glory is heaped upon him. It is unbelievable how much authority and glory and honor is heaped on him over and over. Uh, hunt, like dozens of verses that describe the glory that's heaped on him. It's only glory that's worthy of deity. Um, oh, yeah, and then... <laughs> The apostles, what they say about him. You know, Thomas, when he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet and he says, my Lord and my God. And then I have like three pages of verses all throughout the, uh, the uh, letters to the various churches of the disciples declaring Jesus to be God over and over again. They describe him as God, as God, as divine. Um, the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, he talks about him being the creator, but it's only God that creates. Um, through, uh, the, he's spoken by his son, through whom he's made all things. 
the son of his love who brings forgiveness of sins and all things were created in him. Jesus was in the form of God, didn't think it robbery, robbery to be considered equal to God, uh, appointed the heir of all things. He is the, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by his power. Your kingdom, O God, he says to the Son, your kingdom, O God, is forever. Ever. Anyways, you get the idea. <laughs> it goes on and on. So to say that all of that information can somehow be backwritten, I just, I just don't get it, okay? It's from the Old Testament, but there's a progression all the way into the, the New Testament. So now I want to just close with this one thought. We are called to witness to people. And there are people in this world who are called monotheists, okay? They believe in one God, just like we believe in one God, except they don't believe in one God in three persons, okay? They believe in just one God, and they don't believe that Jesus was, was God. And so I believe that when we approach Jews and Muslims, who are basically the others who are monotheists, when we approach them with the gospel, that we ought to do it the same way Jesus approached the Jews, in other words, describe Jesus as a miracle worker, as one who called God his father very intimately, the one who calls people into a relationship with God through himself, one who is a miracle worker. All these things, just describe what Jesus did. Don't describe what Jesus, who Jesus is, okay? Because it'll be too much for them and you'll blow their minds. And all you really need to do is talk about Jesus, who he, what he was like how much love he had for people, and eventually, as they get to know Jesus, eventually they will come to the conclusion, all this stuff that says about him, he must be God. And now, a lot of times you get short-circuited. I mean, you know, you're sharing with a Muslim fan, and first thing he says is, well, is Jesus God or what? You believe Jesus is God, that's impossible, right? They just kind of go, okay, well, you can't avoid it. Uh, so then talk about, well, the first thing you ought to talk, ask them then is, well, how much do you know about God? Oh, I know quite a bit about God. Do you know everything about God? No, I don't know everything about God. How much percentage-wise do you know about God? Well, I know maybe 1%. Okay? Or, I don't know how much they'll think they'll know about God. But then say, but God is, remember what I talked about God being so transcendent, so different, so beyond our understanding? Drive that point home first. And then say, so in other words, you and I don't know everything there is to know about God. And so maybe we don't know his character or, or that he could be a singularity, a singularity and a duality at the same time. And focus on that. Just, just bring about some doubt in their mind that they know everything there is to know about God. Because almost any monotheist that I know of will, will admit, no, I don't know everything there is to know about God. That God is unknowable. He's beyond um, you know, God, the Old Testament describes God as dwelling in deep darkness. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to know. And, and so, and then just talk about Jesus. Try to, try to just, okay, that's the end of that subject. Now let's move on to actually talking about Jesus. The interesting thing that I've discovered is that I have met many Christians who didn't realize that Jesus was God. But I believe actually, that they were saved, okay? 
members of this congregation, after I preached a sermon just similar to the one I just preached, they came up to me and said, I didn't know Jesus was God. And I'm like, what? How can you not know that? They'd been in this church for decades. And I'm like, how can you not know? But I, I tried not to express that to them. <laughs> okay. As being nice about it, you know. Um, but I was shocked. But I also realized that they were a believer. They believed that their sins had been taken care of by Jesus Christ. Maybe they didn't get to have a full understanding of who he was. But they did realize that he had taken their sins. Now, I don't want to leave people in that terrible state of theological uh, ignorance. Uh, I think it's very important to know who Jesus Christ is. But can you be saved without actually acknowledging that he's God? I don't really know. I don't, I don't want to be a heretic here and say, yeah, you can be, or no, you can't be. But what I want to point out is that sometimes we make it sort of the, the be-all and end-all. But Jesus himself didn't make it the be-all and end-all. He showed people who he was, and eventually they realized who he was. And I think that we need to do the same thing. And uh, we need to be careful to, to witness to Muslims and Jews in that way. And not just go straight for, well, Jesus is God and you don't believe that, so you're going to hell. It, 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 it's not a point that Jesus was constantly pushing. He, he did declare himself to be God. But he did it in a way that allowed people to come to that conclusion them, themselves over time. And so let's not think that we can do it better than Jesus, okay? And uh, let's, let's just be cognizant of that. But let's know the truth. And when people ask, you know, I, I just, most of the sermon I sent to a, a Muslim guy this week, invited him to come, I don't know, I don't think he's here today, but um, invited him to come because we do need to have an answer when people do ask us. And it's, there's reams of information, and like I said, I only went through about half of it, uh, not even. Um, so, let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and we just thank you for uh, your word and how powerful it is and how it describes the Son of God as God himself. And Lord, we pray that we would be in awe of Jesus Christ. That we would promote his glory. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful servants of yours. We do bow before you and give our allegiance to the Almighty, to Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit. We are yours, and we ask that you would use us powerfully in your kingdom. We pray, Lord, as we witness to those who don't believe that Jesus was God, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be gracious, to be patient, to show Jesus Show them who he was. And if they only think he was a prophet, Lord, let's allow us, Lord, to capitalize on that and to describe him as the greatest prophet that ever lived. If they only think of him as the king of the Jews, Lord, we pray that you would help us to show him as the greatest king who ever lived and that his kingdom is, is carrying on today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would truly bring people into your kingdom. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.